and we're on introducing Joel Fulton, CEO at Lucidum, an asset discovery company that eliminates blind spots across the cloud, security and IT operations. Joel, welcome to the cl- Welcome to the cloud. Welcome to the pods. How are you, mate? Well done, Joe. It's a pleasure to uh, do this with you. Thanks for the conversations leading up to this. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one. I know we connected just before the new year, but um, just timings didn't work out. So yeah, really excited to have you on, my man. So I know you mentioned when we we initially spoke that you had relocated out of uh, Silicon Valley now. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, the, it wasn't the coronavirus, it was the consequences of coronavirus. Um, Everybody went distributed workforce. And prior to starting Lucidum um, at Splunk, we had gone on a necessary rapid buildup of our team and staff. And I had had prior experience at Symantec working and leading a remote team and used some of that because you can do it really wrong. I used some of that to blow out our team at Splunk uh, by judiciously hiring remote. Mm -hmm. And so just about 50% of our staff were remote. Um, The advantages for them was we could pay them an above local salary. And their commute was, you know, in their slippers to their coffee machine. And in exchange, we made a way for them. Well, this was our target. Um, They would reflect better how well we nailed this target. But even as we measured, the goal was to make them feel included. And so one of the things hiring remote workers was uh, we sought to hire people with a chip on their shoulder. You can't hire somebody who is fine working in an autonomous cell. You need to hire somebody who's slightly agitated about working remote because that makes them pushy. They don't want to be left out. They're going to be engaged. So having done that at Splunk, when uh, coronavirus hit and across the United States, we ranged in our responses from Australia to Africa. We were laissez-faire. We were dictatorial in the different states, right, across the United. So we moved from one extreme to another, and uh, that has been fantastic for my family, and it's been very good for the company and its goals. Yeah, love it, man. Love it. It seems crazy to think that remote working wasn't the norm until uh the the pandemic which is nuts um but anyway before we dive into that mate i like to to take it right back to to where it all began and how you got into the industry well thank you for uh thank you for asking there is um (laughs) my my entry into the industry was i don't know if it's unique but it was certainly probably not replicable so uh, my my desire was to be a firefighter And in pursuing that, I was working at a wood mill, just something to pay the bills while I trained, studied, and got ready. Um, I was number 12 on the list for the fire department. They hired 10, and there you go for your next three years. Well, in that interlude, uh, the wood products, the timber products industry uh, crashed in the United States. And so I was out of a job. I was out of my dream, and there I sat. Well, there was retraining money available. And prior to taking retraining, they did some aptitude tests and they said, hey, you'd probably be pretty good with computers. Now, we're we're talking uh, 1989, 90, right? And I thought, I have no desire to live (laughs) in my parents' house in the basement with a single bare bulb overhead and a pile of Twinkie wrappers. You know, mom, I'm trying to work here. That's not what I, that was not what I was interested in, right? 
Um, and then they turned the sheet over and they said, here's the salary expectations over the next five years. And I thought, you know, I could grow to love Twinkies. And so that's how I got into computers. I started as a Novell networking engineer. Um, I taught Novell and Microsoft classes and security wasn't really a thing at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, security was um, less than a part-time aspect of a full-time job. And because we didn't really have the internet inside ubiquitously in use, right? You'd have a central dial-up modem for when you needed to do batch exchange of emails on the rare case. Um, but as security became a thing, security became my focus. So that's the, uh, that was the tipping point from what I thought to what I got. Yeah. yeah. Why did security become your focus though? Was you... <laughs> oh, so that goes back deeper. So, so uh, Joe, when I was a kid, like eight, nine, 10, I was uh, mesmerized by fantasizing that I could become a private eye. Yeah. That's all I wanted to be. Yeah. And I read all the Dashiell Hammett books, the Continental Op books, the Mike Hammer book, like books an eight, nine-year-old probably ought not be reading, right? With the, the two-fisted private eye with his 45 and the, there's always some woman and there's scotch in your lower drawer, right? So when I was 10, I knew I wanted to have an office with two desks, one that belonged to my now deceased partner. And in the drawer of my desk, I have a bottle of scotch. I didn't know what scotch was, <laughs> but I knew it was something that you did when you were bored or angsty, right? Yes. So that's what I wanted to be. And it never left me. And so as I got into uh, networking and Unix and, and security became a thing, I thought, hey, maybe this is a way. Maybe to fulfill that, I like challenges. I like puzzles. I like to compete. That, that struggle was fulfilled there. Nice. So when did it become an actual career? So what was the trajectory yeah. early on to, because I know you did, what, five years at Semantics, so running through up to that point, because I think that was quite instrumental for you. Yeah. Yeah. Semantic was very interesting. Um, so uh, security, networking, and app support were my vegetables. Security was the dessert. And in proportionality, like that's how it worked in those in the early 90s. So you'd set up a WatchGuard firewall or you'd set up, um, I'd set up OpenBSD with IPF, IP filter as a firewall so that as people started to get on the internet through banks of modems, that would be the security as well as proxies, which at that time were really used to uh, cache an initial request for a site so that subsequent requesters could get it faster, right? So a local cache for proxy. Um, so that's how I emphasize security. But the game changer was Gramm-Leach-Bliley. When the government passed the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, GLBA, um, that was it. All of the consulting firms were in on it. So the big four or the large 12, they knew this is where they could make money because they saw, I think, Sarbanes-Oxley coming after that. So as soon as GLB hit, my, my proportion switched. I became a security person who knew a lot about networking instead of a networking person that knew a lot about security. Yeah, got it. And then yeah. did you get to Symantec? So when you joined Symantec, what was your initial position when you joined? So um, <clears throat> I had run a consulting company doing financial institution security compliance uh, west of the Rockies. How's that for a specific mm -hmm. ideal customer profile? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, sold that company to some partners, went and became a CISO for a, uh, a bank data processing center, went from there to Boeing, uh, from Boeing to Starbucks, from Starbucks to a consulting company. And I decided um, I was tired of all of this because security became bureaucracy. 
and dealing with the politics and the people, I really rebelled against that. I didn't want to be good at it. I didn't want to engage. So I took a year and a half off to write. So um, I had, and it was the most fantastic, most productive, least financially recording uh, period of my time. So um, when I went back to work, I decided I am never going to work at a place and feel handcuffed, bound, or obligated to them. I will not work at a place I don't like. So I started at Symantec as a, um, uh, I, was a I was a consultant hourly uh, doing compliance work. So yeah. PCI, SOC 2, and um, I loved it. And I loved it because it was a garbage job. Yeah. Nobody, nobody tried to take credit for my work. Nobody thought that you could do something amazing out of it. So I had unlimited upside and I had no political problems. It yeah. was the best. And I learned from that um, what has become kind of my my hobby, my mantra, my my recommendation to others is pursue garbage jobs. If you pursue the worst possible job in that portfolio, you can A, make the most out of it and shine and B, you don't have to fight for credit yeah. over it. So you could really just run pure, right? So that's how I started at Symantec. Yeah, nice. You did five years there and then yeah. you actually went back to Symantec after a short period as well. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Google for a while and I did not enjoy my experience at Google. Yeah. I think Google did not enjoy their experience of Joel. Um, we were <laughs> we were not a good fit. Um, I was all in on the Google experience. I watched the the movie, uh, The Intern. Yeah. Um, I I read all the books by the leaders, and I got there, and I thought, I am. This is going to be awesome. These are hard charging, non bureaucratic, yeah. smart driven people. And when I showed up, I was working at the world's largest DMV. Yeah, it was yeah. like working at the post office. And it turned yeah. out, um, my perception is um, Google makes money on ads. They're embarrassed about that. All they are is a television advertising company. And they know it, and it embarrasses them. Like when they have a good day, the experience of the internet for the world is worse because you get more ads. Yeah. When they have a bad day, the world is better. And they know it, and so they uh, draw, they distract themselves by, hey, we're going to give free internet to India through hot air balloons, or we're going like these weird projects that make them feel good about themselves. And so I got there, and I thought, man, like we get to do stuff. Let's go do stuff. And everybody's like, no, 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 that's not how we do it here. You don't do stuff. <laughs> kind of, and it felt like you were. I was a Japanese salary man who was in trouble, right? Uh -huh. You're locked in your office. You don't get a computer. Like we had fiber to the desktop and most people bought PlayStations and Xboxes in their office so they could play with, with rapid latency, right? With good ping speed. That, that just didn't work for me. And so I kicked it everything. Push, push, yeah, push. Yeah. Um, so Symantec um, offered me to come back to lead the security team. And I did. And uh, then I um, was meeting with at that point, we were we were rolling out, we were moving off of um, ArcSight in our SOC. And our managed security system um, was also looking for a new platform. And there were several instances in the semantic environment where we had Splunk installed. Like we had seven unique deployments of Splunk. And so the salesperson uh, at Splunk, who's a fantastic guy, I love him. Um, he came to me and said, hey, listen, 
we'll give you Splunk for a credit because you'll become the tipping point to get an enterprise license. And I thought, I don't want all of the data that matters to me controlled by you. Mm. Um, at, the, at that time, I was finishing my PhD, and I was learning a lot that I didn't know I was going to learn about statistical analysis, quantitative analysis. And I said, why can't we just do this on Elastic? Let's get it for free, and let's do it on Elastic. And so I was given the challenge, if you can prove out the RI, you can have what you want. And so working with the Center for Machine Learning Excellence at Symantec, who were kind of um, the, the mercenaries of machine learning, right? If you had a machine learning project, they would parachute in and help you figure it out. So we did that ROI and it turned out that deploying Elastic would be in our financial benefit for the first year plus one day. After that, the cost of maintenance, hiring of data architects, data warehouse, et cetera, it would be uh, Splunk that had a positive ROI for us. Nice. So we went, with, we went with Splunk. Yeah, nice. And then you actually landed a job with Splunk full time. So I thought we were doing a great job with Splunk. I was pretty happy with what our team were doing. And I was invited to a dinner during RSA with the Splunk uh, leadership team. Smart. And I thought, like, I get to go, like, twice in my life, I have had an opportunity to go to the source of the river. Symantec. Like, this is it in security. Now, think about the timing, right? Mm -hmm. This is it. This is where all the security people are. This is where all the, the hackers I've followed and the tools I've downloaded, the blogs I've read, the authors are there. This is it. And I went to Symantec and I was like, like, this is like the, this is like the Partridge family. Like, they were famous in the 70s and they haven't done anything since. So my second opportunity was to go to Splunk. So I met with them for dinner and I sat next to Doug, who was CEO at the time, uh, a wonderful kind, smart human being. I sat next to him and uh, I asked him, I said, Doug, I think that we're doing a pretty good job in our deployment and use of Splunk at Symantec, but I want to know how you do it. I want to meet your CISO and I want to learn from that CISO how to make better use of my Splunk. And Doug says to me, well, it's interesting that you asked that question. We haven't had a CISO for eight months. Nice. And so that was, that was what kicked off the conversation and yeah. uh, Splunk was my last job and probably the best job uh, that I ever had. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. We won't go into too much about Splunk because I know we uh, we want to really dive into to what you're up to now. So you obviously, oh, it's kind. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you founded Lucidum. How did that all come about? Because I, I did read a, a blog which I will put in the uh, the show notes around. Oh, thank you. Your, your your lunch or dinner. Mm -hmm. talk, talk to us about that. So. I think that accidentally um, we did it the right way. Um, I think most of the time people come up with an idea and then they try to accrete people around the idea. I think that's the wrong way, um, just in terms of the odds. So I knew the folks with whom I wanted to start a company. And then together we explored what the problem is. And in my role at Splunk, I met with hundreds of CISOs and CIOs and chief cloud officers, et cetera, uh, because part of my job at Splunk was to support sales. Yeah. So as I met them, and once the Splunk business was done, where there was time, opportunity, and, and an opening, I would ask, what problem are you trying to solve? And the ones who thought they were cool would talk about microservices or infrastructure as a service, or like, you're not actually trying to solve that. But the ones who, with whom I had a relationship and there was a level of trust, like they go, listen, man, I don't know what's in my environment bugs the crap out of me. Like, I have no idea. And every time I get an incident, it comes from something I'm like, why is that there? How come you open that port? How come you remove my software? How come that EC2 instance is up? That's my real problem. And I don't tell anybody about it. So that became the genesis for Lucid. 
Yeah, class. And who have you actually partnered up with? Who is the chap that you met? Just give a shout out to him. Yeah, so uh, Charles Feng was our um, CTO. He is a machine learning and AI data. And one of the, the awesome things about that partnership, and I would advise this to people, um, there's a guy, uh, Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger was described by Warren Buffett as being Warren Buffett's brain. And they, they were partners throughout the years of investing that they've yeah. done. So Charlie Munger has a book, and I've got it there, um, called um, His Almanac. And in the book, what he suggests is studying other subject matters than your own pursued topic of excellence, because you will find tools appropriate to your pursuit at lower levels on the shelf in these other topic areas. And that's what Charles brought. He had um, demographic and pricing analysis using machine learning. He had um, done work doing visualization of clothing um, uh, through uh, augmented reality and the dimensions required to make the clothing look appropriate and fit. And, and he, had, he did not have experience in security. In fact, a project we worked on together at Symantec was the first that he'd done there. And so his ability to draw on these other topic matters that all pointed into, hey, how do I find out what this unknown is invaluable? Yeah. Yeah, nice. I think the founding uh, team, as you mentioned, just so important that you get the right people. And you're probably doing uh, yourself an injustice by saying that they're the, they're the brains, but um, you're probably not being fair on yourself. But with regards to Lucidum, talk to us a little bit more about actually specifics of what you are doing and how you're helping solve the, the problem. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Everybody has uh, a cursory knowledge or use of what NIST has codified as the security cycle. Right? Identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Um, we're all in the cloud now, so nobody really pays much attention to recover. I don't think that's wise. I'm being descriptive, not prescriptive. We spent a lot of the 90s dealing with protect. Firewalls, antivirus, EDR, protect was the thing. When we reached the aughts in the mid, we focused on detect. So that was the that was the season of Splunk and Sumo and Elastic and Logarithm and can I detect things. We ended the last decade focusing on respond, phantom and demisto and soar and automation. How do I get action out of what I've detected? We've skipped over identify, which makes all of them better. So identify is a little bit of how do I find my vulnerabilities? But for example, when I attempted this and then eventually determined I had this problem at Splunk, you scan your environment, but you don't see things at home. You don't see ephemeral assets. And what you get is IP addresses. Well, an IP address is not an identifier. An IP address is a temporary characteristic of an asset because DHCP, we release and renew these all the time. So what's the real thing? How do I find it? And then once I found it, what do I need to know to do something? And so we learned through this process, we need to know who owns it, what it connects to, what kind of data it stores, transmits, and processes. And once I have that, now I know my punch list. If you walk into work and you ask yourself, what should I be doing right now to most effectively lower risk? Lucidum tells you, top of the charts, you've got an EC2 instance open, no encryption, it's got confidential data on it, it's owned by accounting, it's open to the world. That is your number one risk. Well, what's number two? All of that is explicated. And then 
what we've done to make this more valuable for our customers, um, you know, people talk a lot about having a single pane of glass. Yeah. Um, we decided that that was mispronounced and nobody actually wants a single glass of pain. What they want is their ServiceNow investment to pay off, their Splunk investment to pay off. Don't make me go to another tool. So we turned Lucidum's capability and added the ability to be ETL. So now we live feed six different kinds of SIMs, four kinds of ITSMs. So your same workflow on security or IT side, now you don't have to go anywhere else. You see everything. Who owns it? What kind of data it has? All of the assets at home, infrastructure, cloud. That's our main value now. Love your yeah. SIM. Love your ITSM. Who cares, though? Who should be caring about this? Yeah, that's really fantastic. So um, the number one person that <laughs> tends to care is the CEO because that's where it boils up. The CEO has to sign off on your Sarbanes-Oxley. The CEO pays the price for any announced breaches. The CEO owns the cost of the budgets. Now, I know that's very indirect, but she cares. Um, who cares on a day-to-day -day basis? It tends to be the operations people on IT and on security side of things, because instead of doing things that matter, they're doing things that suck. They're having to track down, I got a ransomware alert. What is it? Grind away, right? You don't feel valuable. Your morale goes down. And the truth is what I'm paying you to do is silly. I'd like to pay you to flex your muscles and do what you're amazing. All right, move up that layer. That's all Lucidum is, is we're a step stool that lets your team take a step up and reach things higher on the shelf. Yeah, nice. Where are we at now in terms of uh, longevity? So we're a couple of years in now, are we? we three, yeah. four years in? We are now four years in. Four years January. deep. Yeah. That's and right. already from what I'm reading, Fortune 500 companies uh, are yep. involved and it's definitely an enterprise play. I saw you're heavily backed as well by GGVC and I believe SVCI is That's also part of your community. Gave me the shirt. That's right. That's right, oh, the yeah. Silicon Valley CISO investors. So did you um, found is, that? I was one of the eight founders. Okay. And um, we are now 60 CISOs. And oh, wow. it, um, it is a fantastic group. It's a wonderful group. Um, so it was two years, uh, a year, a year or two into the founding of SVCI when I went to the group and I said, I know we've got a regular process for bringing companies in. I would like to bring my startup in. I know that's weird because I'm one <laughs> of the founders of this yeah. group. If anybody says no, that it might feel awkward, I need an affirmative from everybody that it's okay to pitch this. Doesn't mean you have to say, yeah, right. So we backed our way into there because the community means a lot. Like I can't tell you, Joe, during that COVID shutdown, when I met with people, we met obviously over Zoom yeah. or Teams or et cetera. I met with so many people who looked trapped, expressed the emotion of being trapped and said, I just, I got to get out of here. I don't know what to do. This isn't how I live my life. I haven't talked to my friends. I had this group of 59 people that uh, we hung out with together and all of them are smarter than me in their respective areas. If I want to know about AppSec or security or identity, or uh, there's, there's at least four people out there who are smarter than me, more experienced, have done more things in that area that I can connect with. And then they're just friends. And so that has been the number one value of that, particularly through that nadir that was the COVID social outcome. Yeah, yeah. 
But for others that might be in a founder's position that might be interested in exploring uh, SVCI, what value outside of not being just like 60 odd CISOs, which is just insane, what what else and why why would anyone even consider that? Because is it, are they considered an, an angel uh, syndicate? Is that what you'd consider it? Well done. Yeah, well done. we are we are an angel syndicate, um, so we're not a fund. Um, we have an intake page at svci.io, yeah. And if you are seed A, sometimes B, we're interested in hearing from security companies. Yeah, we we don't invest in competitive with our prior investments. And so on our page, we list all of the investments that we've made, um, but we're very interested in meeting these companies. Your question though, is what do they get out of it? Well, what you get is you get 60 CISOs, which means you have probably 240 opinions, but you get 60 CISOs in a Slack channel with you and we will do just about anything. We will do demos, dry runs, role play with sales. We will, um, give you opinion on marketing. We had one Portco ask us our opinion on the color scheme for their new logo. Now, why you would ask CISOs that? I, I don't know. I don't know. But we'll do anything for them um, within the bounds of ethics and morals, <laughs> right? And so the one thing you got to know about a group of CISOs is <clears throat> we aren't just ethical. Um, we tend to the naively self-righteous. So we won't do something that might appear to someone to be close to violating a rule. So no CISOs who are investors are buyers of the companies in which we invest. The, um, the odd exceptions to that are I had my CEO do the review. I had my team do it and I recused myself. Almost never flies. I had my peer do it and I suggested and disclosed. So we're big on disclosure. We're big on ethics. We won't, like what you won't get, and people need to know this if they um, go into the intake process, you are not meeting your customer. Yeah. You're meeting representatives of your customer, but you're meeting advisors who are very interested in you succeeding, not customers. So um, hopefully if people, when people hear this, that will help yeah. because if you pitch like you're pitching to customers, you get the gong. It doesn't work. You got to pitch to people who think they're investors, which is what we think we are. Yeah, that's exactly what I initially would have thought that you would think, oh, that's great. It's access straight away uh, to 60 customers. So yeah, great. It's good that you've um, you've let that make knowledge. So in terms of some of the investments that you have made, are there any that you're particularly like seriously excited about? Has there been any previous exits already? Or how, how old is yeah. the, uh, the syndicate? So... Um... We got into this because um, the same group that founded SVCI, uh, we did a, I guess you call it a community service project, and it's called uh, Security for Startups. If you go to security, the number four startups.com, and it's, uh, we have a GitHub, it's an open source project that lets startups assess their own risk and their next steps to secure their environment. And that started because there was a lot of complaining that, hey, I just joined a Series D and it's a mess. No one's done anything. No one's thought about security. I feel like I was hired as the fall guy. So we thought, well, let's do something about it. Let's help these C, A, and, and uh, B companies figure out what security they ought to have on their own. And so as we built this out, we, like any good product, met with our prospective customers and asked them, hey, 
what do you think? Like, are we overbroad? Are we too specific? Is it too expensive? Is it like, how do we fit? And as we did that, we found a lot of companies in the security space that we thought don't have the attention and really aren't going to make it unless we push. And people need to know we got kind of stoked about some of the companies with whom we were meeting. So that's how we started uh, SVCI and how we got this thing going and off the ground. So um, we didn't do this to invest in companies that will exit within 10 years. We did this for the long-term play. And so we consider that the money that we put in um, is not something we're going to ever see again before the next seven to 10 years. Our focus is on working with those companies. Um, We don't write big checks. So we're in, we're in the 250 to 350 all in, and it comes from individual members who are putting up 5,000 or 10,000. And that's a great aggregated into a single special purpose vehicle. So you got one item on your cap table, you get one check from us. um, But that's how uh, we do it. So one of our early companies, Polarize, um, was acquired. Um, We've got a lot that we're proud of. Um, We're super proud of Lucidum. Yeah, yeah, sick. What I was just going to let that yeah, later you for a second. plug it, mate. Uh, Why not? <laughs> that's right. Um, we are proud of Dorada and Orca and Tromso. And um, we've got companies in um, the SaaS security and identity space like uh, Gem and Encode and Wing. Uh, we're proud of Island. I worked with Mike Fay when he was at Symantec. Now he's running Island, which is a secure browser. Uh, I got Jody Batal's Traceable. Um, Cyril that does data management. So we've got, we've got a good uh, portfolio that, you know, as a new CISO, if you were starting from scratch, we've got everything except endpoint protection. And you could probably solve that through Island, the secure corporate browser, right? So across the mix. Now, our problem is where the holes right? Because we don't invest in competitive because our investment is not passive. Our investment is we're all over LinkedIn. We're recommending it. We're pushing it. We're disclosing that we own mm-hmm. and that we're, we own for a good reason. And you should try these things out. So we can't have Acme and XYZ, right? Um, so yeah. our difficulty now is threading the loophole of, hey, after three, four years, we've got a pretty rich portfolio of successful companies. Now, what are the gaps to be filled? So yeah, yeah. How many portfolio companies is there now? Just out of curiosity. Um, I think we have 16. 16. Yeah, nice. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, look, we could probably talk for hours, man. Um, well, I could. Got, you, yeah, that's probably I've my fault. One, yeah, I'm working uh, on no, it. No, no, no. Let's, let's, let's finish this up with, what, what, based on you investing in companies and having started your own company, um, what what advice would you you give to, to, to a founder, a first-time founder? Uh, what advice might you give give to them? Yeah. Um, so a friend of mine, uh, Andrew, when I asked him that question, we were just starting, he got on the phone with me for two hours and then he sent me like a 20 page document of things you ought to know. So, um, and that was a, that was a degree of love and support that blew me away. Um, such a good guy to take that time. Um, I would read uh, the founder's dilemma. Okay, that would—that's my number one bit of uh, of if I can only do one thing, passing in the stairs. I would tell you read the founder's dilemma. Um, if you have already got co-founders, read it together like a uh, a premarital counseling book. 
read a chapter, talk to chapter, read chapter two, talk to chapter. It, you need to be on the same mind about all of these things and you will get, you need to get in those arguments early. So Joe, you and I suppose we're going to start a company and you are the CEO and I'm the CTO. Well, I know all the tech stuff. It's going to be me that's going to make this company work, right? So I get 51% of the shares, right? Well, then who makes the decision? Like you got to have those arguments yeah. right now. Can't have oh, yeah. them later. Um, and the second thing is uh, prepare for the long haul. Um, it is very difficult because um, you are constantly discovering your own incompetence. Every morning I wake up on the list of things to do, 50% of it, I'm too stupid to do it. Never done it before. Don't know how to do it. Not sure how to start. And I scramble. I call people. I ask for help. I figure it out. And at the end of the day, I realize nobody died. I wake up the next morning, 50% or more on my list. I'm too stupid to do. You need to be good at acknowledging I'm not good at this, but I can get it. When I, when I went and learned how to sail, um, sailing is pretty complex if you haven't grown up that way. And I'm trying to figure out how you sail close to the wind and why it makes sense. Like intellectually, the wind is blowing at you and you're sailing into the wind and the sail provides lift. But how does, and I just can't wrap my head. And then I'm trying to learn all these knots, like those two things. And I'm struggling with it. We're sitting on the deck of the boat and from the boat next to us, a big cloud of exhaled pot smoke drifts over. And I realized, well, shoot, if they can do it high, I got this. That is a startup. You always, you always have these things that are too hard to figure out. But you look over at the direction of that exhaled cloud of pot smoke and you tell yourself, well, listen, if they can do it high, yeah, I can yeah. figure this out, right? And every day, that's the, that's the second piece of oh, advice I give. Love it, Joel. Man, I wish you all the best of success with Lucidum. Um, no, it's going to be a you, great Joe. journey, man. And uh, looking forward to seeing you in a couple of months. And uh, we can get that beer. We're well overdue. I look forward to it. It's a pleasure. And uh, if I can help you with the search and the efforts that you've got, you know that I'm there. Legend. Cheers, Joel. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed today's show, please like and share with your friends and colleagues as this is really important for the show's reach. If you'd like to be our next guest or are interested in Aspron Search's staffing solutions, please get in touch directly with me or reach out to us via our website, www.aspronsearch.com.